Chapter Seventeen of The Shadow of Victory. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Crystal Armida. The Shadow of Victory by Myrtle Reed. Chapter Seventeen A Council of War. Forsyth had the second watch that night, and Mackenzie came out to join him. I couldn't sleep, he said, in answer to Robert's question. I don't know what we're coming to, but we mustn't frighten the women. Of course I don't know anything about it, Robert returned, but I must confess that I didn't like the looks of that Indian who brought the dispatches. He seemed fair enough, but you can't trust any of them, and that's the whole truth of it. There's been some foul play somewhere, for he knew the purport of the order, and it strikes me that he had been a long time on the way. What was it that he wanted you to tell Captain Franklin? He wanted me to find out whether the captain intended to obey the order, and offered his advice to the contrary. He said the fort was well supplied with ammunition and provisions, though it beats me to know where he found it out, and that it could be held until reinforcements arrived. But if we decided to give up the post, it was better to go at once and leave everything standing. His idea was that the Indians would be so interested in plundering that they wouldn't follow us. What did Franklin say? Nothing. He never says much, you know. Who gave the order? General Hull. The Army of the Northwest is at Detroit. Perhaps reinforcements will be sent. Hardly. In the face of an order to leave the post? Why did he wear the British flag? Perhaps to secure safe passage through the country. Perhaps to indicate an alliance with the enemy. Lieutenant Howard has said all along that the Indians were with the British and against us. It begins to look as though he were right. My boy, said Mackenzie with a sigh, wherever that flag waves, you'll find blood. The color of it isn't an accident. It's a challenge and a warning. Well, returned Robert after a silence, we'll have to do the best we can, and that's all anyone can do. I've wondered sometimes, said the other thoughtfully, if I haven't done wrong. How, uncle? Coming here, with Eleanor. I've brought her into danger. But God knows I haven't meant to. I've always had an adventurous spirit, and I couldn't live in the East. The hills choke me. Somebody has to blaze the trail to new places, and I thought I might as well do it as anybody else. Things are moving westward, and some day, in this valley, there ought to be a great city about where the fort stands now. It's the place for it. The river and the lake, with good farming country all around. I knew I couldn't live to see it, but I... I thought my children might. The man's voice wavered, but did not break. It's a commonplace thing to do, he went on. Go to a new place to live, and our people have been doing it for more than two centuries. No soldiery, no blare of trumpets, nothing to make it seem fine. Only discomfort, privation, and danger. The first settlers came from across the water, and since then we've been moving along, a step or two at a time. Some day, perhaps, people will leave this place to go to another farther on, and so keep going, till we reach the ocean on the other side. I haven't done anything, he added with a short laugh, only what the men of our race must do for a century and more to come. You've done what was right, uncle, and what seemed for the best. No one could do more. You've given Aunt Eleanor and the children a good home, shelter, warmth, food, and clothing. You've given your children sound minds sound bodies, free air to breathe, and you're giving them an education. 
You'll find danger anywhere and everywhere. Life hangs by a thread at its best. If it comes to a fight, we have arms and ammunition and fifty men, as strong and true as steel. We have modern weapons against arrows and tomahawks, military skill against savage instincts, and as for the British, why, I have my grandfather's sword that fought them once at Lexington. They tried it, and they failed. They'll fail again, but I say, let them come. God bless you, boy. You put new courage into me. Soft darkness lay upon the earth, and pale stars shone fitfully from behind the clouds as slowly the night passed by. Across the river, with measured tread, the sentries kept guard at the fort. Through one watch and well into another, the two men sat there talking, with their voices lowered, lest the sleepers in the house should wake, and from each other taking heart for the morrow. The spirit of his dead fathers lived again in Forsyth. The blood that burned at Lexington took fire once more at Fort Dearborn. His heart beat high with that resolute courage which sees the end only, with no thought of the possible cost. It was as though victory in passing, to hover just beyond him, had brushed his face with her blood-stained wings. In the first light of morning, Beatrice came across the river from the fort. Whether she knew of the impending danger or not, she showed no signs of fear. Well, she said, it was only yesterday that I told Kit I thought I'd move, and here's a military order to make it practicable. We're going with the soldiers, Queen and I. Forsyth smiled, but made no other answer, and she went on into the house. Mrs. Mackenzie did not appear, having passed a sleepless night, so Beatrice presided over the coffee-pot and made breakfast a gay affair. She reveled in her new authority and took advantage of her position to tease the children. "'Maria, Indiana,' she said with mock severity, "'you'll have to behave yourself better from now out, because I'm your mother.' The child's eyes filled, and a big tear rolled down one cheek. She slid out of her chair and instinctively went to Robert, as one who might be trusted. "'Is Tuzzin be my mother?' she asked plaintively. "'No, dear,' he laughed, taking her up in his arms. "'Give her to me,' cried Beatrice, snatching her away from him. "'You darling,' she said tenderly, as another tear followed the first one. "'I'm not your mother. I'm only your Tuzzin Bee.' "'She's too little to joke with,' said Forsyth in an aside. "'And I'm too big to be lectured,' replied Beatrice with a saucy smile. "'We get on all right, don't we, baby?' "'Something in the girl's attitude.' as she held the child in her arms, reminded Forsyth of a picture of the Madonna, and an unreasoning giddiness took possession of his senses. With a blind impulse to get away, he went out on the piazza, but Beatrice followed him. "'Cousin Rob,' she said in a low tone, "'please tell me the truth. Is there danger?' There was no denial of that look in the eyes of the girl he loved, no chance to conceal the truth. He drew a quick inward breath as he thought, for the first time, what danger might mean to her. Yes, he said in a voice that was scarcely audible. I am afraid there is. In a flash he saw that she had misunderstood him, but it was too late to explain. The color flamed into her cheeks, and she held her head high. I'm sorry you're afraid, she said scornfully. I'm not. He looked after her helplessly as she went into the house, dazed by the consciousness that he had lost her forever. He knew then that she had never forgotten his failure to go upstream with Ronald, the night the Indians had been at Leeds, 
even though she had asked him to forgive her. I have lost her, he said to himself over and over again. I have lost her. Second thought convinced him that he had no chance from the beginning. Since the night he leaned on his musket in the shelter of the fort, confused past the power of action, when the ensign asked for volunteers. Want to go over, Rob? It was Mackenzie who asked the question, and Forsyth gladly welcomed the respite from his torturing thoughts. At the ford all was changed, for the order had been read that morning on parade, and the men stood about in little groups earnestly discussing it. Mrs. Franklin and Catherine were on the porch at the lieutenant's, and Robert went there, feeling that their society would be more bearable than that of the men. If we go, said Catherine, there'll be very little we can take with us. If we go, snapped Mrs. Franklin, do you think for a minute we're not going? A soldier's first duty is to obey orders. Catherine turned a shade paler as she welcomed Forsyth. Have you packed your belongings? she asked. Not yet, he answered with a hollow laugh. The impending danger was obscured in his mind by something of infinitely more moment. When do we start? he inquired of Mrs. Franklin. I don't know. Wallace hasn't decided. But we'll start when he says we will, and nobody need think we won't. Kit, said Mackenzie, as he joined the group, I wish you'd go over to your mother. She isn't well. B is with her, but perhaps you could do something. I'll go at once, replied Catherine. And I must go home, said Mrs. Franklin. If I can do anything, just let me know. Ronald and Lieutenant Howard were standing near the gate, and Forsyth stopped there when Mackenzie and Catherine went on home. It's usual in such circumstances, Ronald was saying bitterly, to call a council of war. And by the Lord, flashed the lieutenant, there shall be a council of war. What are we, children or fools? Ronald put a friendly arm across Forsyth's shoulders. What do you think about it, old man? I haven't thought about it. I'm not a soldier, you know, and I'm not supposed to think. Of course, I'll obey orders, and if it comes to trouble, here's one more man to fight. I'm with you to the last. Bully for you, said Ronald. If the captain would listen to reason, there wouldn't be any trouble. But he won't. I know him too well. He is only one man, put in the lieutenant with sinister significance. And he is our superior officer, concluded Ronald. Hello, Norton. The doctor and the lieutenant exchanged cool salutations. The faces of the others were clouded, but the doctor was as serene as the clear blue sky overhead. Haven't you heard? asked Forsyth in astonishment. What's the odds? queried Norton, with the cynical shrug of his broad shoulders. So far, we have one life and one death. At the end of one, we meet the other. How does it matter? When or which way? It matters to me, said Ronald huskily, whether I die like a soldier or like a beast. Imperial Caesar, dead and turned to clay, quoted Norton suggestively. Clay we were in the beginning, and clay we shall be at the end. Dust thou art, to dust shalt thou return. Lieutenant Howard's white teeth showed in a sarcastic smile, but he said nothing. He seemed interested and even amused by the surgeon's point of view. That's all very well for you, retorted Ronald, because you're a selfish brute, with water in your veins instead of a man's blood. If you loved a woman, the lieutenant instantly stiffened. His smile disappeared, leaving a frown in its place, and Norton's face changed almost imperceptibly. If I loved a woman, he said, I would protect her at the risk of my own life, my own happiness, my own soul. If need be, I would protect her even from herself. If I loved a woman, 
she should think of me in just one way, as her shield. For the sheerest fraction of an instant his eyes met Howard's, openly and unashamed. Then, with another shrug of his shoulders, he turned away, saying, I must go back to my lint and my bandages. We may need them before long. Forsyth went back to the trading station, and the other two continued their uneasy march around the parade ground. I think, said the lieutenant, that the sane reasoning men in the settlement, outside the ranks, ought to get together and talk to the captain. It won't do any good, replied Ronald dubiously. No, perhaps not, but there's nothing like trying. We don't have to go, you know. It's not compulsory. The boys would be with us, and as I said before, he's only one man. Ronald recoiled as if from a blow. God, man, he said thickly, don't make me forget I'm a soldier. He swallowed hard, and it was some time before he spoke again. I don't mind telling you, privately, that I don't think much of Captain Franklin, nor, he added as an afterthought, of General Hull, but in one sense at least, they're my superior officers. I don't know what's going to happen to me in the next world, nor even if there is any next world but I'll march to the end of my enlistment with my soldier's honor still unstained. The lieutenant gnawed his mustache in silence while Ronald walked beside him, breathing heavily. It's madness, said the ensign. We all know that. The Northwestern Army is at Detroit, and the British are at Fort Mackinac, unless they've already started down here. Meanwhile, the Indians, leagued to a man with the enemy, are waiting for us to set foot outside the fort. That fellow that brought the dispatches dared to inquire what we were going to do, so the tribes could act in harmony, I suppose. Of course, it's possible that we can get through to Fort Wayne in safety, and go on to Detroit with a force large enough to clear our path, but I doubt it. Well, said Howard, let's have a try at it. Let's call a council of war. All right, I'll go across from Mackenzie and Forsyth while you get Norton. The lieutenant waited until he saw the others coming before he delivered the message. The two men stood facing each other for a moment after the salute. "'Dr. Norton,' said Howard stiffly, "'we have called a council of war at Captain Franklin's immediately. Will you be present?' "'Yes, if you wish it, I will.' "'I do wish it,' answered the lieutenant, clearing his throat. Captain Franklin himself opened the door to the five men, and there was no trace of agitation in his manner as he welcomed them and bade them to be seated. "'To what do I owe the honor of this visit?' he inquired after an awkward silence. "'We have come for a word with you, Captain,' replied Lieutenant Howard. "'In effect, this is a council of war. One moment, please.' The captain went to the door, summoned his orderly, and gave him a whispered message. "'Now, then, I am ready to listen. Do you intend to obey this order from General Hall's headquarters?' "'Certainly. Why not?' "'Captain,' said Ronald, "'we appreciate your position.' but you must see that it is highly improbable that we should ever reach Detroit, or even Fort Wayne, in safety. Since war was declared against England, the Indians have been openly hostile. The country through which we must pass is infested with them, and they are in league with our enemies. For what reason do the English pay an annual tribute to the Indians, at the same time searching our ships on the high seas? Do you remember before war was declared, Two of the Calumet chiefs told you that our women would soon be hoeing in their cornfields? If you need further proof, consider for a moment that the Indian who brought the dispatches wore the blood-red flag of our enemy. Captain, our march must be slow. We have women and children to protect, and feeble men of seventy and more in our own ranks. 
We have only a few horses, scarcely enough for the women, and about fifty fighting men. If General Hull had been acquainted with the conditions, he would not have given the order. As it is, we must act upon our own judgment, and short of suicide, only one course seems to be open. Is this your opinion also, Lieutenant Howard? It is. Dr. Norton I am not a military man, but I agree in substance with what has been said. Mr. Mackenzie I'm no soldier either, said the traitor, but I think the proper course has been described. Of course, if we go, I'll lose everything I've got in the world, but I don't care for that if we only do what's best. Mr. Forsythe, like my uncle, I'm no soldier, but I agree with Ensign Ronald. Still, I will do what seems best, obey whatever orders may be given by those in authority, and if you wish to send a messenger to Detroit, I am at your service. I will take my horse and start at once. Gentlemen, said the captain, ignoring the suggestion, I appreciate the spirit in which you have come to me, but it is impossible to disobey orders. A soldier's obedience is paramount to all other considerations. Special orders have been issued by the War Department that no post is to be surrendered without battle having been given. Our force is inadequate to cope with either Indians or British, and I should be severely censored for remaining, if not court-martialed. On the other hand, even if the Indians are in league with the enemy because of the yearly distribution of presents, we have weapons of the same kind in our hands, and I shall not hesitate to use them. There is a prospect of a safe march through, and I propose to ally the Indians, temporarily at least, with us. Here the orderly entered, bringing with him Black Partridge. Say to him, said Franklin to Mackenzie, that the white father bids him assemble his people from the four quarters of the earth before noon of tomorrow's sun the traitor translated rapidly as the captain spoke tell him that we have long dwelt side by side in peace and content except when our brother black partridge was away from us and the winnebagoes fearing nothing because our protectors were gone fell upon us to kill say that our great white father in washington has bidden us to assemble at another place even as he will bid his people to assemble here, and that, while our hearts are torn with sorrow, we must obey the command. Tell him that we wish him and his people to see us start upon our journey, and that our cattle and our provisions, our clothing and our supplies, at present in the storehouses of the great white father, will be given to him and his people as a parting gift. Tell him all this, and ask him if he understands. Mackenzie was translating, sentence by sentence, and all eyes were turned upon Black Partridge. The Indian stood as calm and as immovable as stone, listening intently with only the glitter of his eyes betraying any interest whatsoever. Tell him that long shall remain in our hearts the memory of the kindness received at the hands of our brethren, Potawatomis, and the wise counsel of the great chief who rules them. Some day when other sons have run their course, and the great white father gives us permission, we shall return to live in peace once more with our brethren, the Potawatomis, and their great chief, Black Partridge, who is our brother and our friend. Ask him if he understands. The harsh gutturals of the question fell upon the ears of the bronze statue, and for the moment there was a tense stillness in the room. Then the Indian signified that he understood, and withdrew as silently and sinuously as a snake in the grass. End of chapter 17 Recorded by Crystal Armida Texas.